We are continuing on in our series that we've titled Co-Creators, Why Work and Rest Matter. And we're going to be talking about this week and next week why rest is so vital and important for you and your life and in the world and, and why it's so important for you, particularly not just as a person who, who needs rest, but as a Christian person of what it means for us to rest through that sort of the Christian lens of how we perceive and understand rest. But before we do, I saw a tweet this week that I really liked that had to do with our series and it, it had to do with the concept of work and I loved it. And the tweet read this way. It said, I'm still shocked by the fact that we know nothing of what Jesus did from le- roughly the age of 12 till the age of 30. He was, by most estimates, simply the local wood or metal worker. The son of God spent decades simply going to work and doing his job well. There's a lesson here. I love that idea that for most of Jesus' life, perhaps you've never thought of it this way, for most of his life, he was a tradesperson. His ministry only lasted for three years of his 33 years in his life. But from 12 to 30, all he did was be a carpenter. Day in and day out, the Son of God spent most of his life simply serving those in his small village by doing his job really well. And there certainly is a lesson here for us. And it's important for us to remember that the equivalent of what Jesus was doing in his day would have been something like being a plumber or construction worker. And it wasn't particularly... uh, what was perceived socially as the most important kind of work, but it was important work nonetheless to God. And I think it is important for us to be reminded that regardless of the work that we do, we participate in this aspect of Jesus's life every time we choose to do our work well. Amen? But this week we're turning to why rest is so important. When Paige and I were dating we would talk on the phone a lot. Shortly after Paige and I started dating, we started dating November 5th was our first date. That nailed it. Come on. I get points for that. November 5th was our first date. And shortly thereafter, about four or five months after that, I moved up to Santa Barbara to begin my ministry at our church up there as associate pastor. And so we would often talk on the phone. And you can remember those days when you would date and talk on the phone. There's just this weird like obsession. I want to be connected to you all the time. You just spend lots of time on the phone. But I would often call and most of our phone conversations would begin the same way. I would say, hey, what are you doing? And often she would remark to me, nothing. And I always interpreted that response as meaning like nothing important or nothing that I can't stop to have a conversation on the phone with you. And so being a sort of non-believer about someone being able to do nothing, I'd often reply like, well, certainly you're doing something, right? Like watching TV, reading a book, you know, what are you doing? Taking a nap? Did I wake you up? What are you doing? And she would respond, no, I'm literally doing nothing. And being my sort of impatient, sarcastic self, I'd usually come back with, so you're just laying on your bed in your room, not doing anything at all. And she would reply, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm literally doing nothing. And I'm quite jealous of my wife's ability to do nothing. It's kind of ironic that even in talking about the absence of activity in the English language, we talk about that as doing something, right? I'm doing nothing. 
right? But I have often found in my life, and especially in these days and weeks here at the church, that I lack the ability to just do nothing. I lack the ability, perhaps we might say, to truly rest. Every time I find myself in a moment that lacks productivity, I try to find something to do. Getting ready in the morning, I'll listen to a podcast. Driving to work, I'll listen to another podcast. (laughs) Leave the office, I need to grab a few books in my computer so that I can get some stuff done later tonight. Levi's asleep, maybe I should work out. I feel over and over in every situation, in every circumstance that I'm in, a constant pull to do something, to be doing anything. Because doing nothing brings up these strange emotions that I, I would normally not associate with doing nothing. It brings up emotions of like guilt for being lazy, for not being productive, because I need to be doing something. There are projects to be done. There are things to accomplish. And those feelings and those thoughts of laziness and guilt run through my head every time I sit down to do nothing. I had this experience the other day. Paige went to bed earlier than I did that evening. And as I sat in the living room alone, it was no more than just a minute into sitting there. The questions of work began to fill my mind. Is my sermon far enough along so far? What phone calls did I forget to make this week? Did I prepare enough for the group on Wednesday night? How can I better adjust my schedule to maximize my productivity? Where am I wasting time in my week? Did I handle that conversation well? How should I deal with the criticism? Should I be reading something on leadership right now? Because I certainly can use that. But there's this constant pull in my life every time I sit down toward work, to be doing something. And admittedly, this isn't a good thing, but it's a real thing for me. And I know that I'm not alone in this experience. I know I'm not alone because almost universally, when I ask people about their lives, like, hey, how have you been? I get the same response. I'm busy. How are the kids? So busy. How's work been? We've been slammed, just so busy. How was your weekend? We were busy traveling. When are you free to get together? Not until November. I'm so busy right now. Literally had that conversation with my brother this week. It's almost become a value in our culture being busy, right? If anybody told you that they've been really mellow and their calendar is completely free to do things, you would think you are lazy, right? But full calendars, more projects than we can count, filling up all of our free time with activity, 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 activity. And this isn't just true of our adults, it's true of our students. In fact, we're shaping an entire generation of young people to live with the value of busy as primary in their lives. If you ever walked through the day in the life of a student, a typical student in high school, it's shocking how full their calendars are. Zero period classes, because you gotta have school before school actually officially starts. The regular school day, after school sports, one night a week we've got church, two to three hours of homework or studying, and this isn't even to mention all of the weekend tournaments and games and activities and performances that are going on in their lives. Having worked with students for the past six years in Santa Barbara, let me tell you, those kids wake up and they're at school at 7 a.m. and they don't go to bed till like 11 at night. Busyness 
It's such a part of our culture that we have home delivery grocery services because who has the time to go to the grocery store, you know, in the midst of all of the busyness? Amazon Prime brings retail convenience to our front doors in a single day because who has time to go to the store and shop for things? We are way, way, way too busy and we think it's so important that we are. In fact, the University of Chicago did a study that actually revealed that people would rather be busy than productive. That people are so terrified of idleness and being perceived as lazy that they fill their time with activity to the point that they are no longer productive because they don't want to be perceived as lazy. But the problem with pursuing our work in this manner is that we are not capable let me, let me say it again to some of you. You, every one of you, are not capable of working tirelessly all of the time. And what I suspect and others have sort of bought into is that having full schedules, like travelers stuffing their suitcase with all of the outfits that they might need on this trip, right? But stuffing our calendars and schedules like that it sort of reveals the busyness of our lives and the fact that we've bought into at least one, if not two, lies about our identities and who we are. We've either bought into the lie that, we, that our success and achievement is our ultimate identity, right? And so we do more. We do better as a trophy to flaunt it out to people. I'm so busy. I'm so successful. Check out the people I'm meeting with and the projects that I'm working on. Aren't you impressed with all of the activity that I have going on? We love when people say, I don't know how you do everything that you do. I could never do that, right? We love it. It makes us feel like we're really good at whatever it is that we're doing in life. Or we may have bought into the idea that we are God. You see, God has no limitations. God has no need for rest. God can work all day, every day, and not be exhausted or ever grow weary. But here is the reality. Newsflash, you are not God. You were not created to work without ceasing. You cannot physically do hard work without rest, without experiencing consequences in your life for that choice. And the passage that we're going to explore this morning, we discover a simple truth that we need to own as created things who do good, hard work in the world. And that truth is this. Doing nothing is sometimes the best something to do. Doing nothing is sometimes the best something to do. Let's turn to God's word this morning. We're going to be, we're going to sort of springboard this morning from uh, the fourth of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, if you were unaware, are located in two different places in the scriptures. They're located in Exodus chapter 20. That's probably the list that you're familiar with. But they're also located in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15 this morning. This is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And the text there in Deuteronomy reads this way. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant nor your ox, your donkey or any of your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns 
so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. I love that, just pause, right? I love that portion of the passage because it's so illuminating about how, how we as people function, right? It's like, okay, hold on, hold on. If I'm not supposed to work, maybe I could get my kids to work for me and be productive. Wait, if I'm not supposed to work, maybe my employees can work for me and get some things done. Well, if they can't work, maybe I can get my animals to work, right? And this is justification that we always have in trying to fulfill something and, and God's making it very clear. No, everybody, everything universally needs to have a day of rest. Verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. For those who are unfamiliar with the idea of Sabbath within the Bible, to observe Sabbath Uh, one would simply cease to do their work for the day. Pretty straightforward. And it's difficult to overstate how important Sabbath was in Jesus' day because of how much controversy Jesus stirred up in his day. Um, Jesus stirred up a lot of controversy in his day because he didn't observe Sabbath properly per the religious leaders of his day. And they were not very happy about it. And, and one of the things that that reveals to us is that Sabbath is critically important for the Jewish woman and man in the first century. There's much to say biblically about Sabbath and rest, but our passage this morning highlights a particular story that I want us to consider for reflection this morning. In verse 15, our passage grounds the observation of Sabbath or the practice of rest in a previous biblical events. In verse 15, it it reads this way, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So there's this story. And here's the key word, right? Therefore. Whenever you come across the word therefore in the Bible or in the scriptures, what comes immediately after that word has directly to do with the thing that came right before that word. And so there's this story about slavery and being freed from it that grounds the fourth commandment. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The reference here to the story is a time period in the life of God's people when they were enslaved in Egypt. You can read a more detailed version of the events surrounding Israel's enslavement and liberation in the first two books of the Bible, in Genesis and in Exodus. But suffice it to say for us this morning, For four centuries, over four centuries in fact, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. There was a point in their history where they were denied the choice of work or rest. There was no option. The choice was made for them each morning, every day of their lives for hundreds of years. If they ever thought they had a choice of during that time period, they were quickly brought back to reality by whips and by beatings, perhaps even death. They worked, period. There was no choice. Rest was only for other people. Rest was for Pharaoh, and he couldn't rest if they didn't work. And so guess what? They were going to work. As one pastor wrote, Pharaoh had such over-large ambitions, so many things he wanted to accomplish, so many tall, pointy monuments he wanted to be remembered by, and somebody had to build it. And that somebody... In fact, that nobody were the Israelites. 
The work was so grand, requiring so much effort, that Pharaoh set taskmasters, we read in Exodus, over the Israelites to make sure they did the work and never, ever, 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 ever slacked off. This was what life was like for the Israelites, doing the unceasing work of slaves under the thumb of relentless taskmasters. Something, though, quite remarkable happens in this story. God liberates his people from their enslavement and in the process drowns the taskmasters in the Red Sea. He did this in response to the groaning and cries of his people enslaved by taskmasters in Egypt. And in the fourth commandment, the commandment to observe the Sabbath, the commandment to rest, he calls his people to remember what it was like to be a people who had no rest previously. You see, the reason for this fourth commandment is pretty simple when you root it in the Exodus story. The commandment so logic sort of functions this way. Don't revive what God has removed. Do not revive that which God has removed. In his book on Sabbath, Pastor Mark Buchanan writes it this way. Don't, place, or don't gather and piece back together what God has smashed and scattered. Don't place yourself under the tyranny that God tossed off with his own hands. In the same way that we don't pull apart things that God has put together we ought not to join what God has pulled apart. You see, a life without rest amounts to living as though taskmasters still hover and glare over us, ready to beat and burden us if we ever demonstrate the smallest sign of slowing down in our work. A life without rest is to continuously strive and toil as though we had no choice in the matter. As though God has not set us free from the tyranny of slavish work, a life that refuses rest, this is key, a life that refuses rest is to reject God's gift of freedom and liberty and to once again embrace one's status as a slave. Sabbath and rest for God's people is the demonstrable act by which they refuse to go back to slavery, refuse to go back to Egypt. But the greatest challenge to living in this sort of freedom and liberation by observing Sabbath are the taskmasters that still exist in our lives. See, taskmasters stand in opposition to the rest that we are to find in God. You see, though God drowned all the taskmasters, swallowing swallowing them up in the waters of the Red Sea, some of them survived. They survived in the worry and stress and anxiousness we feel every time we consider to rest and take a break. They survive in the audacious projects and monuments that we've begun building for ourselves, the achievements and success by which we seek to be known. These are our taskmasters. See, the taskmasters in our lives, enslaving us to, do, to work tirelessly, are hovering over us every single time that we sit down for a minute and the thought goes through our minds. What are you doing? You can't sit down for a few minutes doing nothing. You're lazy. You need to get something done. Every time we complete a project and think to ourselves, that wasn't good enough. You need to do better next time. 
we can be sure that taskmasters are lurking in our minds. Every time we get to the end of the week and can only think about everything we haven't completed, all the work that still remains to be attended to, the taskmasters are the ones who are scrutinizing us. It's never enough and it's never good enough. And the lie that our taskmasters tell us is that by working harder, by completing the next project, by never stopping, and by doing better work, we will attain the status. We will receive the internal satisfaction that we long for in our work. And while, let me be clear, I hope it's been very clear in our sermon series so far how much I believe in hard, good work. I am not promoting laziness or being less than excellent in what it is that you do. But while our work is certainly hard and good and difficult and requires a tremendous amount of effort, the, the, the requirement that it must be done unceasingly is a lie. A little over a year ago, I officiated a wedding for a couple that have now become sort of dear friends to Paige and I. And the passage that the couple selected for their ceremony that afternoon was a portion out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what's known as the love chapter. It is commonly read at weddings. And the essence of the chapter is that without love, you can have all sorts of success in life. You might look really important to people, but if you don't have love, you got nothing at the end of the day. And so my sort of exhortation and encouragement to the couple in my homily, which is just a really fancy way of saying sermon, um, but I love to say that I perform homilies, but is that in the homily, it was a direction to make love the most important thing in your marriage. Make love the most important thing. Make love the most important thing. And I went through various circumstances on how, how they might be perceived or how, how, how love pervades, ought to pervade their marriage in the various circumstances that they find themselves in their lives, excuse me. And so I said things like, if you prosper in your career, you have the perfect house, you drive the dream car, but you don't love each other, what do you have? If you struggle in your career and you live in a fixer-upper that never actually gets the fixes, <laughs> and you never upgrade the car, but you have deep sincere love for one another do you not have everything so there were tears in the congregation this is always the goal of the weddings you know and the officiants is like let's make people cry then you know you were successful and we're talking about you know love and make it important people nodding their head in the in agreement that's like one of my favorite things that people do like mm, yeah that's good that's good preacher and I got, you know, a lot of credit from people for basically just re-saying the Bible in a new way, perhaps they didn't hear it. But the ceremony concluded and not too long afterwards, you know, you do the family picture thing. And so I'm kind of lingering, talking to some of the family. And, and during that time, the father of the bride came to me and approached me with tears in his eyes. And he began to share with me how much that passage meant to him that day. He began to go on and reflecting about the early years in his marriage when their kids were very young still. He shared with me how he was essentially a workaholic. He traveled tirelessly all over the country, never took weekends off. 
He had this sort of career arc in his mind for himself and he pursued it unimpeded by anyone or anything. And he spent years working this way and he was, let me tell you, tremendously successful. He attained everything that he wanted, quite literally. After years of living this way though, his wife had had enough. She had had enough of the lonely nights. She had had enough of attending their kids' events by herself as a single parent. She had had enough times going to sports games and activities and making up excuses of where her husband was and how meaningful it really was for their family. And so she gave him a choice. You can keep working like this and lose your family because I'm walking out. Or you can work in a different manner and do the work that you're supposed to be doing at home. And he said to me with tears in his eyes, I thought my work had given me everything, but in reality, it had taken everything. When do you feel your taskmasters berating you? Do they berate you when you're just enjoying time with your family? Do they berate you when you're just trying to lay down and just take a nap for a half hour? When you read something that has nothing to do with work, but just mere pleasure, do you find yourself feeling like, I need to be doing something productive? When you carve out time for a hobby that has no utility other than you just enjoy it, do, does it arrive or sort of create a sense of guilt in you? When do you feel like you haven't done enough work? When do you feel like your work hasn't been good enough? These are the lies of the taskmasters in your life. And let me tell you a truth about taskmasters. They will never, ever be satisfied with how much work you do. They will never be satisfied with the quality of your work. But here is the good news. God does accept us even with incomplete work. God does accept us even with less than stellar quality of work. See, the gospel kindly whispers in our ears every time we feel like we're not producing enough. It was good enough. I'll accept this as it is. And the closer and more intimate of a relationship with God, the more prominent that voice can become in your life. If you're sitting in here, Right now, and you feel like you haven't done enough, haven't done well enough, God has a word for you this morning. It's enough, and you're enough. Church, we need to be a people who are formed by rest, who are formed by doing nothing. We need to be a community of people who weekly practice rest from our work and just do nothing. The regular practice of this kind of work is a refusal to be defined or identified by our work. You see, rest is an active resistance to the need to be more than children of God. Rest is the active resistance to the need to be more than children of God. Rest is active participation in the freedom that God has given you through his son, Jesus Christ. In some ways, this, I, this might be a slight overstatement, but I was thinking about it this week. Is I don't know if there's anything that we can do that proclaims the gospel louder than our ability to rest. 
You see, in our resting, what it is that we identify and sort of proclaim with our lives is that God accepts me even when I do nothing. There is nothing I can do. There is nothing I can say. There's no quality of my work in which God will love me even more, make me more his child. And every time we participate in the act and rhythm of rest, we have this proclamation and declaration and confidence that God accepts us just as we are, not for what we do. And this has to shape and form us as a church body. You guys have seen my son running around here um, all the time, right? He's, he's a monster. I wrote something on Facebook the other day about like the terrible twos are like a real thing. I didn't know that that was a real thing. I receive everything that you tell me about parenting with a huge grain of salt. But this seems like a very real thing. But Levi... He's just over two for those who do not know him. And his growing a lot, he's learning English, you know. When we had a kid, I didn't realize I was signing up to be an English teacher for somebody in their life. But there's all sorts of things that he can do. But let me tell you, he really is so limited in his capacities to care for himself, to be disciplined, to have healthy emotions. There's, he's so limited in what it is that he can do. He can't really catch a ball yet. He sometimes can count to 10. He thinks he can count to 20, but we jump from like 10 to 17, and then 19, and then back to seven. He doesn't know the alphabet. He throws things all the time. That's like our big thing right now. Stop throwing things, stop throwing things. But there is quite literally nothing he needs to do for Paige and I to love him more. He adds nothing really to our family in terms of like getting chores done, taking this stuff out. He wants to help and it's always unhelpful stuff. These bigger messes that we got to help out, you know. But there is nothing he has to do for us to love him more. Nothing. Nothing. And when we participate in the observation of Sabbath and rest, it is our declaration that we recognize and identify there is nothing more we need to do to make God love us. We, right now, as ourselves, are enough for God. I was thinking about some of you sitting in this room this week, and some of you are in that season of retirement, and one of the things that I, I talk about or I've had conversations with some of you about is like how you feel like you're limited physically in some of the work that you're doing. You wish that there was more stuff for you to do. You're dealing with health issues or whatever, whatever, whatever. And the list goes on. And, but the essential, what it boils down to is I wish I could do more work. And as I was thinking about that this week, one of the things that I felt like you, if you feel like you can't do enough work, one of the gifts that you give our church is a gift of what it looks like to, to feel the gospel in your soul and to know deep in your heart that you are enough for God. And having that confidence in our congregation of a people who know the gospel for themselves is an important element of who we are as a church and what it is we want to proclaim to the world. And if it hasn't been clear enough, let me just lay it out real quick and I'm landing the plane. <laughs> The practice of rest is just making and marking out an entire day of your week in which you refuse to do work. For Pharaoh and the pharaohs of our world today, servants work tirelessly 
to build monuments that reveal their greatness. But for the God of the scriptures, servants are called to rest and to enjoy him fully. And my prayer for our church is that we would be a people who rest well. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are God who invites us into your rest. God, forgive us for all the times and all the weekends and the weeks in which we haven't rested and dwelled with you. And certainly, rest brings many practical challenges to our lives. But God, we want to be formed by your practices, not the practices of the world. And so I ask God that you would give our congregation a great sense of wisdom and discernment of how it is that they and their families might practice rest and restfulness and in so doing find a great confidence in who you are and who you're shaping them to become. We thank you for being our God. We thank you for inviting us into your rest. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand as we go from this place this morning. May you discover that you are enough as you enter into the rest of our God. And may this good news permeate the whole of your life.